0: I don't know. It's it's just a weird thing. I'm going to edit all this out, but like.
1: (laughs) Hello and welcome to Questioning the Canon. I am Felicia Diegas, a high school English teacher.
0: And I am Ben Rathard, a small town physician.
1: And this is the podcast that questions whether the classics are worth
0: reading. I, I just couldn't help but notice how you got that all in one take and you didn't forget halfway through like some other <laughs> co-hosts tend to do when recounting the show. Felicia, welcome back. Uh, it's
1: been another month.
0: Um, that's great. Separated and it feels so good. Um, it's, uh, it's not another, we're in our different States and safely. Yeah, there.
1: In our perspective States, not as fun, but you know,
0: yeah, we had a good weekend. Um, so, we, we talked before uh, just yesterday about the podcast in general and what we're doing here. And I think you had some really good thoughts about kind of the, the whole of this. Like, because what we've been doing, we, we took our book club, well, it was just the two of us, and kind of adapted it into podcast format where we could start talking about the books. And the drive for the book club was always like, let's read classic books we've never read, you know, right. and always wanted to. But now we're thinking more about like, what about the classic books that are like part of our education? Mm -hmm. And indeed tonight's book actually fits right into that category. And I think kind of led us in some channels. What if we're sticking to more things that you were handed in class and said, here, read this, there'll be a test on it in a month.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Our, like you said, our original book club was just stuff we've been interested in reading that is the canon, or at least connected to the canon, the canon or canonical authors, I would say.
0: Perfect. Yes. We
1: for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I was doing some thinking and thinking we do things like this side of paradise or the fifth mountain, and those have canonical authors, but not those books are not in the canon. So I was thinking we were thinking that we should shift more to the specific canon books.
0: Yeah. Blacksby
1: instead of This Side of Paradise. Exactly. To revisit those and apply a critical conversation to it. And I think that we agreed that we would, for the podcast, focus mostly on the real strict canon stuff. The stuff you're going to find on a high school or college syllabus, but still occasionally do those canon adjacent things that we have yes. so much fun with.
0: I've got at least one or two wild hairs that I want to throw in over the next, you know, year or two, uh, whatnot. Right. Some some weird stuff to have fun with. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll get there. But anyway, to the subject, our book this month, 1956, John Knowles, A Separate Peace. Here we are. Yeah.
1: Who who suggested this one?
0: Uh, well, actually you came to it on your own, but it was a coincidence because a friend in my life, an uh, and artist of our uh, little icon there for a podcast, Meg, uh, suggested it to me and said like, you should read a separate piece. That was one of my favorite books back in high school. And it was right about the same time. Like, I mean, so I swear within a week you said, Hey, how about we do this book, a separate piece? And I'm like, I've never heard of this book, but now two people are telling me I should read it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was just because, you know, high school curriculum's the only place I saw it. And I thought, well, if it's here, this might be a, a good subject. I didn't hear anything about the content. It was literally just, I don't even remember why I decided I wanted to read this. I just so, saw the word. Yeah, I've got
0: thoughts about this for kind of towards the end of the podcast here. But like, I had literally never heard of this book ever in any context. And then once we read it and the story and all that, I didn't know the story in any way. It hadn't it hadn't reached me through osmosis by some other means. So this was like totally fresh to me, even though this is like this is right up there with Lord of the Flies. You know, Mm -hmm. like this is catcher in the rye level of book that people would be exposed to in school because it's just taught and taught and taught and taught. And And has been for literally 50 years, like since it came out.
1: Yeah, which I. I mean, I've only taught in two schools, but I don't think anyone in my school teaches it, which is surprising.
0: Yeah, kind of interesting stuff. Um, Yeah, so uh, apparently, like, you know, it won a a William Faulkner Book Award. Um, The story is really kind of interesting, and we're going to get into that with your wonderful synopsis that I I can't wait to hear. Um, But, uh, yeah, this was a big hit back in the mid-50s as far as books that kind of everybody could read went. Um,
1: Yeah, and I think – This is a random thought, but I think that has something to do with the fact that the subject matter is youth. Coming of age stories are just infinitely popular.
0: Yeah, 100 percent.
1: And they especially make great canon books because they were then, you know, kids can relate to it. Like, oh, I'm growing up, too. I feel those same things. Right.
0: And then, like, technically, you never outgrow it, you know, because the frame story is the guy coming back to Devon, you know, to
1: yes. see
0: the tree and everything. So the this book actually has a sequel. I don't know if you encountered that. Um, I did not. It's not exactly a true sequel, but it also takes place at Devon, uh, and it's called Peace Breaks Out, and it follows uh, a man who was a soldier in World War II who comes home to teach at Devon, So it's like from an adult's perspective. And I don't know what the plot of the story is there, but like it's kind of like a successor. He wrote it came out that came out in 81. So like nearly 30 years later.
1: Do you know if thing. it was well received?
0: None of his other books were well received. Not, not, not a single one. This is his only book that did anything. Um, additionally, the title of the book comes from uh, it's, it's actually an excerpt uh, from a short story from Hemingway in uh, in the book called In Our Time. It's about um, I believe some people who are uh, in a uh, be, being shot at from a firing squad. There's a a phrase where somebody says that you know they found a separate piece, and that is my friend Luke. Actually, I was telling him about that we were reading this book. He's like, Oh yeah, isn't that a quote from Hemingway? I'm like, How the hell would I know? Like I I'm, I don't know a lot of Hemingway and all that. Would you please hit us up with your synopsis?
1: <laughs> I sure will. Well, first of all, what are we yeah.
0: drinking? Oh, sure. Yeah. Let's, let's get to the important stuff here. So, tonight, so how uh, people
1: understand it when it comes through.
0: Yes, the, the the important stuff here for that. So, on my end, I've got an apple cider with a little bit of whiskey in there. Uh, this to commemorate the winter festival uh, and the cider that Brinker brought. I'm excited about that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you got? Um, I'm just drinking some beer. It's Grolsch. It's got that pop top. And it just seems like the kind of beer that they would be drinking at the time because they drink both beer and cider in this story.
0: Somewhere, something you could get on the nondescript seaside of New Hampshire. Um,
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Is there there even a seaside of New Hampshire? Is that a thing? (laughs) I don't even know.
1: Apparently. (laughs) I don't know. I've never been to New Hampshire. All right. Let's jump into the synopsis. Okay. A separate piece focuses on the relationship of two students, Jean and Phineas, at a boys school in New England called Devon during World War II. At the start of the book, they're all enrolled in the summer session at Devon at a time when the focus is on the war. So the undercurrent running all under that summer is that soon the boys will no longer be 16, but will be grown men and the war will take them. So during that summer session, the rules are really lax and the boys take full advantage of it. Our two main characters, Jean and Finney, they're roommates and best friends, but opposites in the way all these good stories are. Jean is serious and studious. Finney is athletic and careless. Finney is the undisputed lo- leader, not just of his and Jean's relationships, but of their entire group of friends. Finney is fantastically charismatic.
0: Mm-hmm. People
1: flock to him and do what he says. For example, he convinces Gene to do the very dangerous feat of jumping out of a tall tree from the limb of a tall tree into a lake. For his part, Gene seems to be baffled by Finney most of the time. His feelings are complicated, partly because he is obviously in love with Finney, and mm-hmm. the feeling is mutual. <laughs> you,
0: just, you just say it right there. Excellent. Excellent.
1: I couldn't figure out a way to do a synopsis without mentioning that.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep, yep.
1: So this is never tacitly said, but it doesn't need to be because it's so obvious. But because Gene cannot acknowledge his feelings for Finney, his feelings turn into loathing. One event marks a significant turn in their relationship. One day, Finney casually breaks a swimming record at Devon when it's just him and Gene in the swimming pool room. Finney, however, doesn't want anyone to know, even though Gene is like, whoa, what did you just do? We have to tell everybody. Finney doesn't want anyone to know, and he doesn't want it officially recorded. Gene cannot understand this. And the fact that Finney is telling him not to tell anyone just eats him up. Hmm. Gene comes to the conclusion that Finney is jealous of Gene's academic feats, so that Finney is doing all he can to keep Gene from succeeding. He does this to Gene's mind by distracting him from studying overnight trips to the beach, playing sports, nightly meetings of his, this club he makes up, that kind of thing. The suicide, super suicide club of the sun. <laughs> super secret suicide squad Ayo. club. Yeah, not squad, that's why. <laughs> Soon it becomes obvious to Gene that Finney was never trying to sabotage him. He was never trying to distract him from his studies. He just wanted to be friends, and he genuinely didn't know that Gene needed to study. He thought studying and academics and A's came to Gene the same way that athletic prowess came to him. So he didn't understand, and that's when Gene realizes, like, oh, we're not actually mortal enemies. He's not trying to sabotage me. After this realization, the boys go to a meeting of their club, a requirement of this club is that one must jump from the tree into the lake to become a member. Jean and Finney always start off the meetings by jumping off the tree, which Jean hates doing. This night, Finney wants them to jump together. Somebody named Leper, Lepellier, who we'll talk about later, is going to be supposedly becoming a member. Um, This night... Finney wants them to jump together, but when Gene is behind Finney on the branch, he intentionally jostles the branch by bending his knees a bit, and then Finney falls to the ground, badly breaking his leg. The school doctor declares sports are done for Phineas. Gene wrestles with his intense guilt over what he has done to Finney, although it is widely thought of as an accident. Gene visits Finney at his family home just before the new school year and tries to tell him the truth, but Finney will not hear it. Finney has a tendency to just refuse to accept truths that are too hard for him to process. So, for example, he insists through most of the war that the war is not real and some conspiracy. So the school year begins without Finney, who's still recovering in his family's home. Life at Devon changes only a little with the boys helping here and there with various home war efforts. All the boys, or most of them anyway, talk about enlisting, but no one does until... Leper Lepalier finally does. Meanwhile, Finney arrives back at campus, still refusing to accept the possibility that his best friend is the reason he will be physically disabled for life. His and Finney's relationship at that time is as close as ever. However, there were always whispers about Jean's role in Finney's fall. One night, some of the other boys forced them into the school's assembly room for an investigation of what really went on that night. Dun dun. Yes. Finney does not respond well at all to the questioning, and he either can't or won't remember that Jean was on the branch with him. He keeps saying maybe he was on the ground, maybe he was on the rungs. Whether he actually can't remember or is in his state of denial is not super clear. Finney gets upset and leaves, but then he falls down the stairs, breaking his leg again. Jean visits him later that night in the infirmary where Finney lashes out at him. Now, after breaking his leg a second time, Finney is finally able to acknowledge the truth of what Jean did. So Gene leaves. The next day, Gene brings Finney some of his things at the request of the doctor. And then at Finney's desperate insistence, they agree that Gene jostling the b- branch was a, quote, blind impulse. And that he didn't really understand what he was doing.
0: Something seized you, didn't it? Didn't it?
1: Yes. Except unlike... Finney just straight out refusing to accept reality. It seems like this version of events could actually be true. Gene visits the infirmary again later that day, just as the doctor tells him he's scheduled to be getting out of surgery. But when he gets there, the doctor tells Gene that Finney had died in surgery. His heart just stopped on the operating table. Life at Devon goes on. The, the novel basically ends right there. The war goes on. Gene enlists, but he never sees any action, and he won't ever speak of Finney again. And like you said, this has a frame narrative. So at the very beginning, Gene is coming back to Devon and revisits the tree and all the other places. And then it's at the end when he's reflecting again, saying, you know, he never really saw action, but he talks about how how important his relationship with Finney has always been. And the fact that he still doesn't talk about him and that's the book heavy. Yeah.
0: Like, uh, at the end when he's talking about his service in the military and how, you know, he just drove supplies from one place to the next. And you can tell he's just living the few years in the service or whatever it is. to the war is over. He's just in a daze, like a stupor yeah. and hasn't recovered from Finney's death. The quote at the beginning of the book, uh, Nothing endures, not a tree, not love, not a death by violence. Mm -hmm. And it's like he's he's I I take it as like Gene has just like his life is ruined. Like he's just never going to be the same after this.
1: And how could you be? Yeah. Yeah. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but I also love that line and it makes me happy. One of the few things about the movie that made me happy was that they use that line at the beginning. Yes. You know, I keep bringing this up in our episodes and <laughs> it drives me nuts when there are great opening lines and movies don't use them. So yes. just want to put it out there. I'm really glad the movie did utilize this.
0: Yes. I And I, I was obviously thinking about you as soon as I realized that what was happening. <laughs> like, there's something to it. Like a novel is a giant work. You know, it's going to take the person probably months to bang the thing out and then it's going to, you know, done well. It probably should be edited and stuff. But mm-hmm. like to really get that first paragraph down and set a tone matters. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, you're on to something there. I, I was reading, you know, people's take on this book. And for the most part, everybody agrees that, well, there's this undertone of homosexuality, but don't pay any attention to it there. The real story is about going into world war two and becoming a, becoming a man. And, you know, what? like, yeah, yeah. You know, like for it's like,
1: it's well, the opposite. Yes.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Wow. I think people are cautious and hesitant to try to paint. Well, okay. To say that they're painting this on top of it. Like, well, I'm reading this. Like they might be in love with each other. No, they are in love with each other. (laughs) Like. Yeah.
1: There's no great powers of analysis or deep reading. It's, it's very obvious. It made me think of, this is a little obscure, but you know, the film and novel uh, fried green tomatoes. Of course. Uh, have you ever, have you seen it or read it?
0: I've not read, I've seen it many times. Uh, Jessica Tandy, man, she's great.
1: Yeah. In the book, just like this book, their relationship is very obviously romantic. Oh. Like, they are in a relationship, an established relationship. In oh, which, yeah. yes. You yes, know, yes. one gets jealous of the other because she's spending too much time with another woman. Like, oh. they live together, they're raising a son together. There's no... Other like other than using the exact language that says they are together, calling each other, girlfriend, wife, whatever they are undisputedly together. Yeah. And I feel like that's the same case here, even though it's not said and the boys don't say it in so many words to each other. They say it to each other.
0: Yes. The part whenever they're on the beach and mm-hmm. um, Finney has the little speech that he gives to Gene, he says, you go to the beach, you don't go to the beach by yourself you go with your best pal and you're my best pal or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. like, and there's just like a pause in the way it's, it's said, it's just like, he's saying, I love you, Gene. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. And the fact that Gene won't answer mm-hmm. because Gene's feeling the same thing. And it's obviously just, there's nothing uncomfortable about saying, Hey, you're my best pal too. Like that shouldn't, that should yeah, only pal. be. Maybe,
0: yeah, buddy, yeah. Sure. But that's not what he's
1: Feeling. That might be mildly awkward between two, like, manly dudes, but they're not. And th- there was really no reason for Gene not to return the sentiment unless the sentiment meant more than the words.
0: You said it. You said it. So with that, then, I'm, I'm just going to go cut right to the whole the jouncing uh, as, as I think about it. You know, like whenever Gene shook the branch and Finney fell. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the the book hinges on this moment and the book does not provide, in my opinion, a satisfactory answer as to why he does it. They have heightened emotions about, you know, Finney's uh, sports abilities and Gene's academics and that, you know, they're, they are contentious over that. But yet, you know, Gene couldn't even describe it like, you know, the quote here is is kind of long. Um, but to, to get into it, he says, uh, holding firmly to the trunk, I took a step toward him. And then my knees bent and I jounced the limb. Finney, his balance gone, swung his head around to look at me for an instant with extreme interest. And then he tumbled sideways, broke through the little branches below and hit the bank with a sickening, unnatural thud. Mm -hmm. So, like, you don't even know what's really going through his mind at the moment there. But it's not a small thing that he did. Like he I think he was angry and upset and he didn't know what to do. I think this is the exact same mentality that's like for people who'd have they have very large feelings and they don't know what else to do. So they do something reckless or wild or they don't even know what the outcome is going to be.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. And this comes directly after him realizing that Finney never had any nefarious mm-hmm. purposes the way that Gene had imagined him. You know, just before they go to this meeting, Gene gets pissed off and says, I have to study. I have to study. He freaks out. And Finney's like, oh, you do? The, you, you actually need to study. Okay. Stay here and study then. No big deal. Yeah. And that's when Gene realizes he's not actually trying to take him away from his academics. He really literally just wants to hang out with his friend.
0: Exactly. Yes. It's not yeah. a sabotage. It's like, no, dude, I, I love you.
1: Right. <laughs> like... And Gene does not know what to do with that, like you said. Mm-hmm. He had all these awful thoughts for months about Finney, realized they weren't true.
0: Yeah. So like, but then you have these two boys in a culture that has no outlet for homosexuality. Like, there's just, there's nothing that exists. You know, it was even mentioned whenever um, Finney was wearing the pink shirt at the beginning, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I I don't know what the term they used, it was fairy or something like that, you know? Yeah, Um, I think it was fairy. Right, because they've got an understanding that that's something else and that's bad and that's not us. I mean, we wouldn't wouldn't even begin. They literally don't even know how to think about it in those terms because they're not those things. Right. Uh,
1: and there's yeah. so much wartime culture going on there. I mean, their their parents' generation fought in World War One, and now they have this huge cultural expectation of being men for World War Two. So it makes total sense that there would be no outlet for any kind of emotions that are just more than, Hey, you're my best pal. Mm, Yeah. And even that, you know,
0: the doctor in me has to address uh, the fact that Finney died of a, what is we call a fat embolism. Um, It's actually a piece of the bone marrow that uh, breaks loose. These happen in large bone fractures. It was his femur that broke. I I think it was his femur. Actually, I might be wrong. It was a I'm tibiot. pretty
1: sure it was his femur,
0: yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that, that's number one there. So, if that shifts, if that gets into your vein and then goes back to the heart in this kind of trauma there, it will end up in your lungs. It, your His heart did not stop. It ended up in his lungs, and that basically would have just killed him within seconds because his lungs weren't working anymore. The worst part about this kind of clot is there is literally nothing that can be done, even today. So the doctor in the book was so sad because he said, I should have sent him to Boston. It's like, they would not have been able to save him in Boston either. Like there, you, you can't give, there's a blood thinner does nothing. The thing is not made out of clot. It's made out of fat. And you know, it sucks.
1: I'm already anxious enough in day to day life. I'm so glad I'm not a doctor. Thinking (laughs) of All the things that could go wrong.
0: (laughs) we're, We're just a collection of, Happenstance and luck that keeps us going every minute of this day.
1: I was actually going to ask you about that. Like, because in the novel and the movie, they say the bone marrow went straight to his heart. So that's not entirely true, but your lungs can still be rendered completely. Unusable with just a tiny piece of marrow in them?
0: It, it doesn't take very big, but almost definitely. It's, it's what's called a saddle embolism. And this can be with a, a regular blood clot or this kind of embolism. But it has to be a big enough chunk that when it goes in, there's a place where your um, pulmonary artery like splits to go to both lungs mm-hmm. and it goes in there and it just sits on both of them. So basically no, um, no appreciable amount of blood is able to go past this to be oh. exchanged with more oxygen. And th- I mean, it just takes minutes um, and you're gone uh, at that point.
1: So. Wow. Well, wow. poor Finney.
0: Anyway. All right. So. So this book is written by a gentleman by the name of John Knowles, and that's not to be confused with. Paul John Knowles, who's also known as the Casanova killer. Uh, yeah,
1: who had, it's not on Wikipedia. Yeah. He went on a killing
0: spree in the American South in 1974, went across several States and it was awful. And it's as much as I read about that. Uh, not also to confuse with the very famous guitarist, John Knowles, uh, who's like up there with like the great American guitarists. If you know them, like Chet Atkins really likes John Knowles, for example. Um, trying to just search on YouTube to find a video or two or like a biog- biographical information about John Knowles. I could only find stuff about the guitarist.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. I okay. saw that, too. I was hoping that they, they were the same person. Right.
0: All right. So our John Knowles was born in West Virginia in 1926 his father was the vice president of a large coal mining company there, and his family would often vacation back in Massachusetts where both he, um, his father and his mother uh, came from there. So this is like going to the Northeast was something that was routine for John growing up. Uh, as such, uh, he applied and got into Phillips Exeter Academy uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire at age 15. When he first got there, he struggled a bit. He really wasn't able to, like, I think this was like his first long trip away from home and like I was probably fighting some teenage depression there, but he wasn't doing well at his school. And then something just clicked all at once and he says, I fell in love with Exeter. So he just like started doing well in school, really figured out how to apply himself. Uh, he had his own minor fall from a tree for which he had to be on crutches for like a semester. I don't think he even necessarily broke anything. And then he based the character of Finney on David Hackett, uh, his personal best friend, who went on to work for Bobby Kennedy in the Justice Department, apparently. Uh, okay. But uh, this David Hackett was also like a really big athlete. Um Additionally, he also based the character of Brinker on Gore Vidal, who was at Exeter at the same time as him. Oh,
1: that the, makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, how about that? Uh, so he he went on to be you know an author and a politician in his own right for there. So like small world, you know how this stuff works. Graduated from uh, Phillips Exeter in 1945, and then he enrolled in the Army. I believe he was in the Air Force Division, but he was only there for a few months, basically just in the training aspects of it there, and then the war finished. Um, so he did not go overseas um, during the war, did not see any action or anything like that. Then went to go to Yale, uh, graduated from there in 1949, and he could only ever compare it to Exeter, saying it just isn't the same
1: oh boy.
0: experience I had there. He was on the Yale Daily News uh, board and had several other writing posts on campus. Uh, he himself was a record holder uh, for swimming times, uh, apparently, at Yale. So of, of all things, these things okay. back. Write what you know. He then uh, became a bit of a journalist over in Europe, and he was an editor for Holiday Magazine. As these are the jobs he found himself into after he graduated, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the Hartford Current. Now, Holiday uh, is was a rather famous magazine. I think it only came out like a few times a year. But what it would do, what it would involve, was uh, authors, famous authors, who would write pieces about their travels in Europe and other parts of the world, and there'd be like large glossy pictures. It was very much a beautiful rich person's coffee table book or magazine. I should say Mm -hmm. that that is my understanding of it there, but he was the editor of this Uh, met a lot of authors this way. Uh, And he had already been writing his own stuff at that point. Um, But uh, he ran into, it was, I believe it was Thornton Wilder was the person who encouraged him to turn some of his other short stories into a longer novel. And he had two stories. He was work He had worked on one called Phineas And one called Turn in the Sun. And he developed both of those into what would become a separate piece, which was his very first novel. Um, He did not expect a separate piece to do well. He seemed to have tempered expectations on it there. He's like, if we sell a couple thousand books, I'll be happy. But it exploded. I mean, like within the first couple of years it came out in 1956, it just took off like a bottle rocket. Um. apparently it started being taught in schools relatively quickly after that, because I think people were looking for, like, some way to start to talk about World War Two already. It only been 10 years. But, you know, like, let's let's get that conversation
1: yeah. going. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: And, you know, this is a relatable content, relatable characters. Yeah, it, it all makes sense. Uh, some of his other major books were Indian Summer, The Paragon, A Vein of Riches, um, and Peace Breaks Out. Those were in, like, uh, the 60s or the 80s. He put books out every few years, you know, basically just to to, to keep himself busy. None of them were successful, not not a one. Uh, well, towards the end of his life, uh, he was asked, uh, would he be happy that he was would only be known for one book? And his quote was, you know, it paid the bills. And yeah. I got mm-hmm. to live an unfettered life as an author. I got to write the stories I wanted to write and I didn't have to worry about the next paycheck. Um, and, you know, that is a good aspect. You got to kind of live the life you wanted to there.
1: He's got a good perspective.
0: Yeah. You know, it, he, he honestly truly did seem to be humble throughout this whole experience uh, there, you know, cause it's, it's what a thing to write a book that's literally this popular. Um, he never married. Um, and none of his relationships of whatever form or shape they took are Findable online. Um, I
1: wonder why.
0: Yeah, so I ordered a biography from our local um, library and it is pending. They can't seem to find it from the library it's going to be coming from there. So I didn't have it in time tonight to skim through it. Uh, I was hoping maybe it would be somewhat more enlightening. But I have a strong sensation. I'm calling it sour grapes. I was like, I bet there's nothing in that book that I mm-hmm. haven't found. From, I mean, I found like 10 other sources on John Knowles. Like, there's blurbs about him all over the place, and those blurbs are three paragraphs long. You know, like, and
1: they all say the same thing.
0: It's every, like, it's the same information cycled on the internet there. So it's interesting, but obviously, this was not something that either anybody cared about or that he wanted anybody to know about, whatever his private life was. He died in 2001 uh, out in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He was 75, and apparently it was a pretty brief illness. I couldn't find exactly what that was. But ju- just to further highlight how little I could find about him, I could not find out what his middle name was. Like, huh. it just like, you know, one of those, like, random things, like, but none of the sources that I found, you know, like, is it's probably just Paul or something like that. But it's like, come on
1: now. I'm going with Kenneth. John Ooh. K. Knowles has a good
0: I like that. JKK. Here's the thing that's pretty interesting. A quote made in 1987 when he was being asked about a separate piece. He said, quote unquote, Freud said any strong relationship between two men contains a homoerotic element. If so, in this case, both characters are totally unaware of it. It would have changed everything. It wouldn't have been the same story. In that time and place, my characters would have behaved totally differently. If there had been homoeroticism between Phineas and and Jean, I would have put it in the book. I assure you, it simply wasn't there.
1: I want to eat that quote and chew it up.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I am... A little. For, for one, I'm not a journalist. I don't have any obligation to like only report the truth, and obviously this is a podcast about my opinions. Mm-hmm. But the opinion I'm going to give you here is something that's not be- really bounded in fact or reality or anything like that, because the reality is I do not know John Knowles' orientation. I don't know it. I do not have that information. So we're going to talk about the movie in a little bit. But one of the really interesting aspects of the movie was, you know, you're watching the the two young actors playing Phineas and Gene, roughhousing and, you know, playing around with each other and like wrestling and, you know, physically touching each other. Like as, as I watch the movie, it's just like these characters are in love with each other like that. And you know, I don't even know these actors are given the direction to do that. But like, you know, I can just see it so clearly. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing that I know for sure is that Knowles had a hard time watching the movie seeing the scenes and the emotions played out by real actors bothered him. Like he said that specifically, like man watching it played out. It's one thing to have it on the words and, you know, but like actually seeing it played out by actors was like, Whoa, that was hard. Like, yeah, that was hard, man, because you still haven't processed it.
1: Yeah. That's a really great point. I think that's, Hmm. I don't know if it's usual for authors to say that watching people play out their their scenes and dialogue is hard. I've never heard that. I can see how it would be a little discomforting, but difficult.
0: What I find frustrating about it is that even in 1987, which is, you know, 30 years after the book came out, that he's still doubling down on this mm-hmm. to say, like, no, 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 there's, there's no romance. There's no love. There's none of that stuff in this book. It's, it's just about friends and all that. And it's like, I don't know. Here's another point I want to make is that I've never heard of this book. I don't know if it was offered to me back in high school because, you know, I I wonder, it's like, you know, do some people read this book and they pick up on it and other people read the book and they're like, no, no, it doesn't have any of that hanky panky stuff in it. Um, (laughs) I don't know. And I think that's
1: gotta be the case. Yeah, I think that's the case with any literature in which something is ambiguous or any media in which something is ambiguous. Some people are going to pick up on it and some are not. That's just the nature of the thing. Yeah. OK, men can have relationships without there being a homoerotic homosexual. But that that's beside the point. Yes. Um, I think the fact that he said if if I'm remembering this right, if Jean and Phineas had been aware of it, here's the thing. I think they are unaware of it. Ding, ding, ding. They're not waking up in the same dorm each morning thinking how much they could wish to crawl in bed with each other. No, that's they're not. not. happening. They yes. have not. I, when I wrote in my synopsis that they're obviously in love with each other, that's obvious to us. Yes. In my mind, they don't know. They right. have not acknowledged this because that's that is too forbidden. And that's why Gene's feelings turn as black as they do. Yes. Because he's stuck in this society, much as, as John Knowles was. Yes. He, he can't. Yes. Right. Like Gene is trapped.
0: Like they're so casual with the terms of the super suicide club. You mm-hmm. know, like suicide, why suicide? Like that's yeah. kind of you know, I mean, it's it's fine if you want to joke around out there, but, like, why did your mind go there first? Yeah. The feeling of being trapped, of knowing, even as this stuff is trying to grow inside of you to be a thing, you're like, I have no form for that to follow. I have no understanding of how that could ever work. They know what being gay is, and they know they aren't going to be that. They're, mm-hmm. They are aware of that concept.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It makes me f- i i guess i hesitate to say this because i i don't want to speculate or get paternalistic or anything but it makes me feel yeah it makes me feel a little sad for john Knowles.
0: Mm-hmm. that's exactly it, how it makes me feel
1: yes on the assumption that he is in fact gay whether closeted or not and the fact that he felt compelled to say that that right. quote that's disheartening
0: it is like uh it's, it's frustrating because, like, you know, he never came back to revisit this to, well, you know, he he needed to come out and say that the, the, the two were gay and just get that over with. No, he didn't need to do that. But he did maintain that, like, the words are what I said on the page and that's all there is to it there. Like, I don't know. Yeah. dude
1: I think if he had come out and said it, it would seem you would have to be very careful to write a story like a, a straightforward upfront story about two gay men Mm -hmm. at the time that he was writing it. Yeah. Right. It would have been a very different book, but for the book it is, it's very genuine. Yeah.
0: And you know, like we think about, I I think it's a little bit of a bias there where we think we have a good understanding of like the books that are out there and the sampling's like, no, no, we barely have a sampling of the books that were popular, you know, like Mm -hmm. we, we don't know those books, but like, you know, if he had written a book where two boys, you know, expressed their love for each other while at, at Devon, there, that would have been considered smut and thrown away, and we oh. never would have heard about it. Like
1: absolutely, yeah. There's <laughs> so, no way. Yeah, that's sure. a really good quote. I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Of course. I mean, it's it's in my opinion, it's extremely telling.
1: <laughs> There's one thing I want to talk about before we move on to the yes. movie. Yes, please. And that is this. I'm going to get a little English teacher here but this story is written. (laughs) So this is told really strictly in first person. Mm. So it's from Gene's point of view. We only get his thoughts, his feelings, his inner turmoil and his interpretation of events. And I think that's, as I read through it a second time in preparation for this episode, that really struck me because so much of the time he's wrong.
0: It's true. Yeah.
1: And, and I thought about that too, uh, for the haunting of Hill house, because when we get things from Nell's perspective, it's, it's third person and it's, um, we hear people, all people, people's thoughts and feelings, but when we get Nell's thoughts and feelings, she's wrong all the time about what people are thinking and feeling and her role and things. And yeah. I think Jean does the same thing too. I don't know about you, but when I was reading that scene where he comes to the quote-unquote realization that Finney is against him and is in competition with him and is yes. trying to sabotage him, I was reading and getting frustrated. I was like, what? Yes. No, this guy is your genuine friend. He cares about you. Yep, yep, yep. The writing is so good that for a second I was like, is he right? Yeah. Um, But I think it's really really important to the structure of this story that this is, this is Jean's story, even yeah. though I would argue the book is about Finney. Yes. It's a Jean story about Finney. And I think that colors so much of what we read.
0: Yeah. I, I think Jean is a good guy, and, but he is uninteresting and dull. And if it weren't for Phineas, uh, you know, it would be not worth reading really. There was a part that I super sympathized with towards the beginning of the book. Whenever I think it's whenever they're inventing Blitzball, um, Gene is reflecting, saying, like, there's Phineas. He's so charismatic and he can just make a game up and like people will just fall in line behind him. And he was my best friend, my best friend. Yes. You know, he considered me my best friend, the best friend he had. And that really made me feel like somebody. You know, it's like, yeah, huh.
1: It's, it's all is.
0: about him. Right. Because it's not like he's not just your friend.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> he's mine. <laughs> yeah. Mine. I, I like that. <laughs> so you brought up that he he's basically a good person. Seemingly. <laughs> There's one thing that makes me disagree with that. Which okay. is something I'm glad to go to because I wasn't able to talk about it in the synopsis, which is leper. Leper leper.
0: Yes. Leper. Right. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, in the story, lepers, the oddball, um, he yeah. collects snails in his room. He just thinks things he thinks about things differently than others, but a good person. And he enlists first. Yes. And Jean gets a telegram from him at the Winter Festival where they drink the cider right. uh, when he's with Finney. And the telegram says something to the effect of. Um come now I have escaped. I'm at the Christmas place. My yep. survival depends on you or something like that. Yes. I have escaped. Yes. He was in the army. Yes. Or the military of some kind. I don't know. I don't remember what branch. I think it's army. Probably. Gene goes and meets him and it turns out that Leper went I don't like the I don't really like the word crazy, but he went crazy. Sure he, the stress got to him. He was not able to cope. He had some kind of breakdown. Yes. When Leper is trying to tell Gene what happened, Gene tells him to shut up, that he doesn't want to hear it. Yes. Why would you be telling me this? Why would you think I would want to hear it? And this is the person that Leper in a very vulnerable state, this is the person that he reached out to for help. Yes. And all Jean does is for one, kick him out of a chair for suggesting that he had something to do with Finney's fall, yeah, I can see why that would upset him, but don't like kick a dude out of a chair man sure, and then get angry at him for trying to confide in him. And it was that when I was rereading the book, I was like, Jean's actually kind of a dick.
0: I that's totally fair. That's that is a good read. And honestly, I omitted that in my mind as I was thinking about it.
1: I did, too. When I reread it, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't remember this happened.
0: Two thoughts on that. One is I am very sure that Leper is neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably high functioning autistic. Is That's the impression I got. Um, I got that
1: impression, especially from the movie. I don't know if you did too. I did,
0: yeah. The the actor, you know, the, the way they portrayed it, you know, worked the same. But it t- totally agreed with what I remember from the book as well. Yes, uh, is I agree. It's Like this guy looks at the world differently, and indeed he does. You yeah. know, look at the world differently. Um, and like you know, for him cracking up and all that, it's not even necessarily that he had like a psychotic break or anything like that. He was put under. Far more stress than he could handle. He did not have the coping strategies for being in the military, mm-hmm. so it basically made him react like really awfully. Like
1: yeah, he was having hallucinations. Right, and yeah. it,
0: th- that that is something we see. That that's a real thing, you know. Um, with uh, wait, with like people. so,
1: if somebody's under too much pressure, they might hallucinate. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: totally. Wow. So it, it all depends. And then, you know, how that how we enter into that conversation with like, you know, how that affects people who are on the spectrum and all that. That's a total that's yeah. the, the waters well over my head at this point, as far as being able to tell. You. Well, it
1: makes me feel better about my imaginary friends. So that's all that matters.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh. So um, the other point I was going to make was that how him being violent to Leper there really just shows how he has not processed. What he did to Finney, you know, Mm -hmm. even the beginning of that conversation, like how he did it, why he did it, you know, what were the motivations for him jouncing the branch in the first place and then being in denial about it? You know, the, the courtroom scene got really kind of frankly true to life because. Everyone is telling their own version of things and Gene just wants to be able to deny it. He's like, But you know, I was my I was still on I was I was on the ground. No, I mean I was on the ladder, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just it's you know, and like and you can just feel him wanting to believe that these things are true. You know, take it back, take it back, take it back. I didn't do this, I didn't jounce my best friend, I didn't hurt him because I love him, you know, which is what you did, you know.
1: Right. I hurt him because I loved him.
0: Yeah. And Because I couldn't have him, you know, and, like, because I I couldn't actually know what this is, so I just freaked the fuck out, you know? Right.
1: And, again, he couldn't possibly understand these emotions because he wasn't aware of them. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So, let us actually dive into talking about the movie just a little bit. Yeah,
1: let's do it. Let's do it. 1972,
0: shot on location at Phillips Exeter Academy.
1: Woohoo! And I believe it was also adapted by John Knowles, right?
0: Uh, so not adapted, he was consulted. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So he they, they I, I don't know what that fully consisted of, but I get the impression that like maybe it was a phone caller too. <laughs> like, like
1: keeping him on keeping him on set, giving him a deli sandwich every now and then. <laughs> go go
0: over to the craft table. <laughs> yeah. find, find yourself something. We'll be busy here working. Um. So then Parker Stevenson is the guy who played uh, Gene, and he was actually one of the Hardy Boys uh, on oh. their. Yeah, their thing. So, here's the first thing that jumped out at me at this movie when I saw what it was, what the film looked like, the the voiceover narrative, this is the exact same caliber of film that is a mystery science theater 3000
1: movie. <laughs> I was like, why is, why does this look like it was recolored from a 20 silent film? Yeah. <laughs> it just See, I don't right. know what it is either, but the production quality is bad. Yeah. Uh,
0: the actors were basically n- no one of notes. Not that they have to be, but like the acting was like, <laughs> anyway. Yeah.
1: That's, that's a kind way to put it. <laughs> I found the acting painful. And partly, I think, because I think this is a very good book with very good dialogue, and they used much of the same dialogue. Yeah. But, man. The
0: words are there, but uh, the performance. uh, mm.
1: There's nothing behind it.
0: The apparently the jumping tree, which I get the impression that the tree they used in the movie is actually the tree that was at Devon, or it was it was at Phillips Exeter, because like, oh the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be based on a tree, and I'm guessing they just used the right tree, which was a black oak, you know, for all you dendrologists out there, I'm I'm sure you were waiting to know. <laughs>
1: um,
0: the speed swimming was replaced with a high jump in the movie, which was an interesting choice. Of I mean, it's fine. Really yeah, change. all I can
1: think with that is that it's just more visual than swimming. I feel like swimming is the more popular Olympic sport, though, so I don't know if that's valid.
0: I I don't know either. They, I'm sure they had their production reasons for doing Maybe it. Maybe a
1: pool was too expensive.
0: Yeah, I, I see that.
1: Yeah, the acting just bothered me because it should have been good. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if the actors were better, production quality aside, I think this would be an excellent movie.
0: Yeah, because it's there, and you know, it's it's the same complaint that I had about their eyes were watching God. It's like, well, yeah. no, we have the movie. The movie exists. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, the movie is shit. Like, it, there's no soul. Yeah, there's no there there. It's Indianapolis. Um, <laughs> I do have a quote from the movie that I wanted to read. Uh, Hitler has only got one ball. Goring <laughs> has two, but very small. Himmler is rather similar, but poor old Goebbels has no balls at all.
1: How many times did they sing that?
0: I mean, maybe 11. It, it went, so this is in the courtroom scene, like where yeah. there's like some revelry that breaks out. Well, Brink, Brinker goes to get Leper, who's, you know, hiding in the dean's office or whatever. And they just, I've never heard this song before, but like Me it was- it was a popular war chant back in World War Two. Sure, sure, a marching marching uh, chant, but like I mean, it went on and on and on.
1: And I don't understand why. Like the first two times, I was like, okay, I get it. This is funny. Um, third time, I was like, okay, surely this is the last. They'll get back down to business because it's a very serious scene. Yes. And in the book, they do break off and start making fun of teachers and doing impersonations or whatever. But not that. That was just a straight up riot. Like, what? It completely killed the tone of the scene.
0: It was another another of many weird choices. um, Yeah. The end of the movie, though, does have a pretty good. uh, Is this the closing line of the book? Um, when he says, I couldn't escape the feeling that it was my own funeral, and you don't cry in that case. Um, I
1: don't know if that's the last sentence, but it is one of the last, because I yeah. think that's a fantastic sentence. Oh, yeah. So it did good by me twice. Good yeah. opening sentence that it used, good ending <laughs> sentence that it used. All right, I officially like this movie now.
0: Oh, great, okay. <laughs> We're all settled up on 1972's A Separate Piece. Very good, very good. You know, so, like, th- th- there's... Here's kind of one of my big takeaways on this. And, and I don't actually know the answer to this, so I'm just kind of talking out loud. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that this book has not really been interrogated and examined and come back to about talking about the fact that it's a love story between Finney and Jean. Like, you read the story, and then as far as I can tell from what's out there, you just make what you're going to make out of it there, and we're not actually going to, like, come to any kind of consensus on it. But, like... There are still people in cultures in America today, especially where it's like it's not OK to be gay. And like yeah. you, you will move to, I don't know, you know, the big city, you know, within like four or five hours away because you can't stay at home anymore because you're gay. You know, like yeah. your small yeah. town does not welcome you. This book is full mm-hmm. of challenges um, there. It, this book should be read with context and should be taught by a caring adult that, you know, wants a person to explore the truth of the matter and put it in context of what the 50s would have been like and the 40s would have been like for these characters there. But I would say this book absolutely does belong in the canon. That's my take.
1: I agree. And in fact, I think I'm going to teach it later this year to my sophomore. Boom! Bringing it into action here. I've been trying to find something to read other than Lord of the Flies because I'm so fucking sick of Lord of the Flies. Mm. Uh, But anyway, yeah, so I'm thinking of teaching it later this year. I think it it deserves its place in the canon. I recommend it. I think even if you're not teaching or in high school, give it a read. It's a short easy read, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Took no time to get through it. And it frankly it was kind of funny. Like I mean, I like that it's it's got comedy in it. The the writing is good, the characters are completely believable. Um it feels good to read. And then at the end of it, you realize after you finish the story, it's like, oh, shit, I have to unpack that. You know, it's it doesn't unpack itself.
1: No, it doesn't. And I, I just am now so stuck on what you said about John Knowles. And there's so much of me that's wondering how hard it is to unpack because he put it in there unpacked. He yes. he did not have it unpacked himself.
0: Like, I can only surmise that at this stage in John Noel's life, he would have been exactly 30 years old when this came out. Um, Like, I mean, and he would have been raised in, you know, know, the society of the 40s and all that at, at the time. So, like, he very well may not have known to himself that he was gay. Or I shouldn't say known, but like you know, like he thought maybe I can continue to keep this shoved down forever. That could have been his outcome. I, you know, yeah. looking like I don't know.
1: Could have been. I hope not for his sake.
0: But oh God, I hope not. Yeah, like you, you don't change it. You don't make it go away. There is no such thing as making yourself be not queer if you're queer.
1: No, like, there's no. No matter how hard people have tried and Republicans have tried. So yeah, recommend. Yes.
0: Strong recommend. Yes. Me too. I, I like this book.